Hey, Kyle here. So the other day, I had gotten my kids some dinner. I would gotten them some chicken nuggets and some french fries. So naturally, they needed ketchup. So I go to the fridge, I open up the door, and I start looking in the side door where the ketchup always is. And I start pulling out different bottles and looking and, and where is the ketchup? I can't find the ketchup. I, I, see, I see the ranch, I see the barbecue sauce, I found the hot sauce, I, I move the juice, and I just keep moving the same like six bottles over and over and again, and I can't find the ketchup. And I'm like, the ketchup is supposed to be in the door. And I kind of scan around the rest of the fridge, and I come right back to, to the door, the inside of the fridge. And I'm looking, and I can't find it. And so finally, I'm so frustrated that I can't find the ketchup. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to the pantry. I at least know there's another bottle there. And Ruth just jumps in and says, Kyle, what are you doing? I was like, I can't find the ketchup. I'm going to go to a spot where I know there is ketchup. She's like, the ketchup is in there. And I was like, okay. And so she comes over, probably like some of you is when you're looking for stuff, your, your wife or your spouse comes in and is like, here, it's, it's right here. And Ruth does that. She, she goes over to the main section of the fridge, moves like the juice and the milk and one other thing in there in the back of the fridge where the ketchup isn't supposed to be the ketchup is. And so in that moment, I'm reminded a few things about myself. I don't really look well, um, and I'm, I'm easily fixated on, on some stuff, and, and I don't like to, to move stuff around the fridge. And when we get fixated on something and being in a certain way, sometimes we forget what we are supposed to do in the first place. I was so fixated on where the ketchup was supposed to be that I didn't take into account that it could be somewhere else in the fridge. There might have already been an open bottle. Well, in today's story, Jesus interacts with people who are fixated on something. They're so fixated on it that they forget to take in the rest of the, the circumstance, the rest of the setting, and the rest of who Jesus is. So the first group that we're reintroduced to today is the Pharisees. The last time we saw them, they were planning to kill Jesus. They were looking for something in Jesus' life to go, gotcha. They understand that Jesus is claiming to be God in flesh. So they approach Jesus, come all the way up to see him, and look and ask for a sign. Now, the reason why asking for a sign is important is because a sign would prove that someone is divinely directed by God. It was a pattern that these Pharisees were used to, to, to evaluating people who would come and claim to speak on behalf of God. It signifies a token which guarantees the truthfulness of an utterance or the legitimacy of an action. Now, they were asking for something more than a miracle. So they were asking for a prophetic statement of sorts, something where Jesus, they were asking Jesus to say that something was going to come to pass and then do it, to give them a sign. And they did this and they were asking for this to verify that Jesus was claiming to be who they were understanding him to be. So they were looking to Jesus to authenticate who he was. And so ask for a prophecy, ask for, for the confirmation sign. And what's interesting is that Jesus, as he looks at them and he listens to them, and in verse 12 it says, sighing deeply, Jesus groans. You're asking for a sign? Have you missed what I've been doing? And so Jesus' refusal of a sign has important historical and theological significance. So, so I say 
his, like in history and theological for, for two reasons. The demand for a sign expressed the desire to judge Jesus according to the norms defined by scribal interpretation. Jesus knew that, that these Pharisees were backed by looking at customs and norms. And Jesus had already critiqued them and saying, you're trying to judge me based on external circumstances rather than the core of the Torah. And so you're asking for a sign, more prophecy, more something to be verified that I don't, in fact, need to, to verify. And in fact, by what I have said and what I have done in prior encounters, have actually proved I am who I say I am. And Jesus knows what they're really asking. He knows that they're trying to trap them. And he knows that if he gives them a sign in this is instance, that w- they will go back and cite precedent. And they will sanction him to death. And they would claim that Jesus is a false prophet. And so Jesus, knowing kind of the, the, the historical backing, decides that this is not what he is going to give them. Jesus was conscious of acting under the direction and authority of the Spirit of God. He had already pronounced that the scribal norms by which the, these Pharisees were, were judging others on were decayed and sterile. And he now rejects their pretentiousness categorically. Jesus will not perform the sign because he is not dependent on the Pharisees to approve his claim. He's dependent on the Father, just as Jesus had learned in the desert during his temptation. Now, theologically, the demand for unmistakable proof that God is at work in Jesus' ministry is an expression of unbelief. By the Pharisees asking Jesus to do this sign, to to make a prophecy and then confirm it with a sign, basically making it come true, they actually prove that they don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, or they wouldn't have been asking for a sign. It represents the attempt to understand the person of Jesus within the categories which they were wholly inadequate to contain his reality. The call for a sign is a denial of faith. Jesus rejects the way of signs as fundamentally wrong because it precludes personal decision in response to the word of revelation. Jesus is trying to help people understand, to to really move from a sign-centered faith to a word-centered faith. Jesus wants the Pharisees, he wants his disciples to take him at his word. And what we see in just last week's teaching, and if you missed it, go back and check it out, we saw that the woman took Jesus at his word and understood his word and thus proved to, to understand Jesus, who he was and who he said to be because of his word. And so the Pharisees are fixated on a sign and Jesus does not want the people to be fixated on signs. Rather, he wants them to be fixated on him. And when you are fixated on Jesus, when you're focused on Jesus, you can be flexible when different circumstances arise. I want to go back to where we started, uh, really in the story of Mark. If we go back clear to to Mark chapter 1, at the beginning, I I said we want to listen and respond to Jesus. And as Jesus comes onto the scene, he he challenges people to repent and believe. That, that, That we need to sit in who Jesus is. We need to trust him. And to truly trust him means we're not going to stand on our own two feet, which means in this situation to repent and believe, to turn away from uh, our own understanding of 
customs and norms and who Jesus is means that we're actually going to begin to truly take Jesus at his word. We have to return to that learning circle every time we're faced with a choice about whether we will exchange the truth of God for a lie, whether we will put our trust in what we can see or what Jesus says will come to pass and understand who he is. In this interaction, Jesus is communicating to them the truth that once again, they aren't repenting. They are simply regurgitating rhetoric. The murmuring of the Pharisees has gotten to the disciples. This is the leaven. This is the disbelief in Jesus that manifests itself in a call. And so we have to be conscious as as we exist as people, maybe who are trying to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus, that we aren't simply regurgitating the rhetoric that's constantly asking God for a sign to to prove himself as Lord and King, but to truly begin to repent of our own understanding and believe that he is who he says he is, which means we will not regurgitate rhetoric. We will repent and believe. We We will, in this case, not allow the external standards by which the world and the Pharisees were using to judge and determine faith will actually begin to use, rely on the test of faith that comes from the internal, that manifests itself external. So this story continues, that the Pharisees are saying the same things that they have been taught to say their whole lives, that, the, that they need to live by a certain formula. And the disciples then are beginning to display their dependence on the physical rather than the, inter- the, rather than the eternal. And so as Jesus tries to usher them in, into the boat, it says in verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them. They're, they're forgetting who Jesus is. And, and what they're referencing here is the story that happened just before this moment where Jesus provides for them, where he satisfies their souls, once again, and not just their souls, but but their hunger. And Jesus senses this in them. And he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of of Herod, because the disciples were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. They were beginning to display their dependence on the physical rather than the internal. They were turning their eyes and their fixation was becoming what was on what they had rather than who Jesus was. And they begin to think in terms of the physical on what they actually didn't have rather than who Jesus was, which is what they had. And so just like making a pumpkin pie with salt instead of sugar, Faith ceases to be sweet when the fixation is on the formula, on what you have, that A plus B equals C. And that's what the Pharisees and the the followers of Herod were trying to get Jesus to live by, was a formula. Just do this, and then we will know that you are who you say you are. And the lie is that we can't live by a simple formula. And in every and any situation, that if we just do the same steps, we will get the desired result. That's a lie. And we should not expect others to live by our formula. Because what happens in formulaic thinking is we get fixated on what something that we think should be there when in fact it isn't. here's, Here's what I mean by this. 
my kids have been watching a show called The Floor is Lava. And what happens is at, at the start of the show is, is as you look at the lay of the land, there's all kinds of obstacles and you got to get from one obstacle to the other and you got to get from the start to the finish without falling into the lava. And what happens is at the start, people start to game plan. They start to scheme and then they, they start to make their way across the obstacle course trying to not fall into the lava. Well, what happens is certain obstacles produce different changes on the layout. And what usually happens through the course of the game is that people get so fixated on their predetermined path that, that when the course begins to change or an obstacle that they wanted to go on actually becomes slippery because of the gurgling of the lava, they fail to change their course. They forget that the, ob- the goal is to get to the end. The goal isn't to simply go on the fixated path that they had determined. And, and, and what happens is that usually they fall into lava because they fail to adapt to the changing path because they believe their formula, their path was the right one. And it may have even been good for a time. One of the players on the team of three may have even reached the end by that path. But through the changing circumstances and the the gurgling of the lava, the other players fail to adapt. See, if we aren't aware of the voice of God and the other voices we hear, then we will default to the formula for faith rather than the focus of faith. And saying something they have heard again and again, the Pharisees have completely missed the very signs and apparently, that apparently they now want. And the disciples are infected by this and thus are apparently consumed with the notion that they need to resolve the meaning of Jesus on their own. And Jesus is fully aware of this situation. And this is why he calls out to them with a series of questions. This is, watch out, beware. Be, t- take into account the setting. Take into account the voices that you are hearing. And they have witnessed Jesus' intervention, but once again doubt Jesus' sufficiency in the boat. And Jesus actually cites Jeremiah 5.21 within his soliloquy. The gist of this quotation was applied to people who are outside of the faith, but is now applied to the disciples. That, that people will, will observe, that they will get so fixated on what they know and what they can tangibly grasp onto that they will totally miss the point and actually miss God's intervention. And if intellectual and spiritual blindness leads to hard-heartedness, as is this case, blind faith without content must inevitably lead there as well. The faith for which Jesus appeals is a faith born of understanding and insight that comes from his word and not a fixation on what he can do, but on, but a focus on who he is. And the disciples then are not chastised for not believing, but for not seeing and understanding. They're chastised for not being aware. They have reverted to an outside in mentality. And even worse, they have allowed the outside voices to be present within them and expand, causing them to miss the miracle. The disciples were stuck in their own world and were completely blind to the miracle of God sitting right in the boat. And I'm thankful that the story doesn't end here because it might be one of despair. Those who are sitting with Jesus have completely missed the mark. 
You have the Pharisees who are stuck in tradition and custom as well-meaning as it was that missed the signs. You have the Herodians that thought any sort of morality was outdated and thus missed the flexibility and the honesty and the, the direction that Jesus brought. You have the disciples who are with Jesus and are consumed with something that's not even remotely connected to the purpose of Jesus. So I'm thankful the story didn't end there for the disciples, for the Pharisees, or even for the Herodians. From a place of misunderstanding, there's always an opportunity to repent. There was still time for them to be moved to the front, to, to understand and to, under, to be aware of the fixations and to go from being fixated on something that really wasn't that important to, being, to have their focus truly on Jesus. And sometimes you need someone to come along and say, hey, let's move some stuff around the fridge to find the ketchup. And when someone comes along and says, let's move some stuff, you'll become aware whether you've been fixated on something. And moving around some different pieces and parts, it produces stress. Maybe it even just exacerbates the frustration. Jesus is constantly ushering the disciples away to the other side to help them become more aware of what the real issue is underneath their stress, underneath what is consuming them. Because they've been fixated on something, and they've missed the focus that Jesus was calling them to. And so in the midst of our stress, stress can both break and refine. It can break us down, and it can refine us. In the hands of Jesus, the object is always made new. Whether it's broken down, whether it's through, whether it's being refined. In the moments of stress, in the moments when we're fixated on something and we're so frustrated, we're consumed by something that seems so significant to us, Jesus is in the boat with us, and he calls us to watch out and beware. But he doesn't just leave us in the boat. He gives us a direction that gives us the opportunity to take a wider scope of the picture and ultimately be made new. A few weeks ago, I used the picture of a house to describe where we are as a church. And I, I, I challenged us to move from the how do we make church work right now, or how, how do we get through this season in terms of the living room? And I invited us up to the lab, to the laboratory. And in the lab, there is trial and error. There's experimentation. It's never an experiment for the sake of experimentation. The goal is to find answers, to find a solution. What Jesus wants us to see and understand is that he is Lord. He is king, and he is in the boat with us. And true belief in this fact will direct our eyes off of what we don't have and put it on what we do have. That's him. It will take us from being fixated on something as like physically as only having one piece of bread and returning our focus to him who can multiply that bread to a place of abundance. When we settle for a lesser king, we settle for quick fixes and visible safety nets so that we don't have to go into the unknown with Jesus, resting on who he is and thus exercising our faith. I want to remind you of a story that we as a church went through 
back in the Easter of 2019. That we as a church, we, we have gone through a season like this before. For those of you who are part of that journey, you may remember that we wanted to do worship service to help people get an idea of what our weekly gatherings would be like. And so we feverishly worked as a, as a young and small team in the beginning of 2019. I called 10 locations to say, hey, we want to meet on Easter to do a worship gathering. Out of calling these 10 locations, some said no, and others did not respond. It seemed like all doors had been closed. It seemed like there was no way forward. And I, with fear and trepidation on how the team might respond, came and approached at a gen night and said, I'm out of options. We had this plan. I was leading us through this plan. But I don't know what to do because it seems like every door has closed, that we can't find a space to do this gathering. And together there on that evening, we prayed. And then we put out some options on the table. And we decided to move forward. And out of that evening came an opportunity and an option to say, hey, while we can't gather inside, what if we went outside? And there together we devised a plan, I believe through the guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit, to, to go to a local park and to do an Easter event, an Easter party in the park where we would just barbecue and invite our neighbors to come and hang out with us. To say, hey, listen, this is who we are. We are a church that lives because of Jesus. We exist for generations to come. And guess what? We have this family mentality. We, we have kind of this, this backyard barbecue mentality because that's, that's what it means to be family and, and really invite people into that. And what was so amazing is as we were fixated on a worship service and then we were able to reorient our eyes and our, and our hearts and our dreams to the focus of what Jesus was calling us to, the result of that event was over 100 people came out for an Easter egg hunt, for a backyard barbecue. Heck, someone even brought a donkey for kids to pet. And what we learned in that moment, I think, and I want to remind us of, is that we need to be responsive to God's leading. Church, I don't want us to get fixated on a model or a method. I don't want to get us pigeonholed into looking for the ketchup and the door of the refrigerator because that's where it's supposed to be. That's where we're supposed to put it. Because at the end of the day, when we get fixated on a model or a method, those models or methods can be taken away. They can be moved. I want us to be focused on expanding the family of God through our everyday lives. I want us to be focused on Jesus so that we can listen to him collectively and respond and navigate this moment. Not by focusing on what we don't have, but focusing on who we do have. Together we have Jesus and we have each other. And we know what we were, are focused on, that we are focused on this task of expanding God's family together. When we are able to move some stuff around, while maintaining our commitment to help others trust and follow Jesus and become a part of his family. So together, may we remain focused on what God has called us to, on who God has called us to.
And that's to be a community of everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection, that he is on the throne and doing that for generations to come. See you.